Hi, how you doing? Welcome to my podcast, A Design for Life. How to survive and thrive at life. My name's Phil Mears, entrepreneur, mindset coach, and I want to share with you my life lessons and how I learned to survive some unbelievable life traumas. But also, from that, I designed a successful life for myself. I'll also share with you my harrowing backstory and how I can help you with not just the big life-affirming challenges and changes you want to make to your life, but also the little everyday challenges when you're feeling a little bit disorientated and you maybe need a little bit of a boost to get you going again. This podcast is where you'll discover my secrets of how to apply a positive mindset to uplift your life when you're feeling a bit stuck, maybe don't know which way to turn. And you will be able to thrive in ways you've never before imagined and perhaps start living the best life you can. I'm excited to have you with me here, so thanks for tuning in. From the minute we're born, it is critical for our emotional, physical and psychological development that we are nurtured by kind, loving and caring parents. When this is absent, then the impact on the child can be so traumatic that they may never recover. And later on in adult life, the issues associated with this trauma may manifest themselves as serious mental health issues. Now, if you take a child that has grown up with that lack of care and love and then add abandonment by a parent or both parents on top of it, then you could be forgiven for believing that such a child would have serious development problems later in life, potentially suffering relationship issues, self-harming, substance abuse, violent behaviour and PTSD. What I've just described there was my start in life. By the age of eight, I'd watched as my mother walked away down the street, leaving me behind in an empty house, not knowing when, or if I would see her again. And yet within two years, my father would do the same. So it's no exaggeration to say that the start I had in life was less than rosy, shall we say. But as I firmly believe, the life you live now is dictated by your decisions and your actions, not where you began the journey. In this episode, I'm going to share with you one of the most devastating stories of my childhood and how I felt about it at the time what was happening to me, what my thoughts are now about it and how it shaped my mindset to survive and thrive and become the person I am now. But importantly, I want to break down how I believe that you can benefit from the five lessons I feel I learned along the way to enable you to survive and thrive and design the kind of life for yourself as I did for me so that you can know definitively that if you can dream it, you can achieve it. After all, I'm still here. I'm living my best life, so it's all doable. So let me take you on a journey that I know I'm going to find a bit challenging. I'm not sure what emotions will show up for me, but I'll keep going no matter what. And having you with me here, that will definitely be a comfort. I want to begin this story when I was around eight years old and I felt settled at school. I had a few friends. The bullying was manageable and I enjoyed learning as I still do and this would be around the summer of 1974. I was not a huge football fan. My team Derby County were division one champions and the World Cup was on in West Germany and generally life felt normal 
And then I was told we were moving as a family to a town close by, a town that I knew well. And we went to see the detached three bedroom bungalow my parents were buying, which had a garden all the way round it. Who wouldn't be excited at that? So we moved house. I started a new school and I hated it. But this was the one and only time in my life I moved school when it was by design because the family was progressing positively. Life seemed to be moving ahead nicely. The house was being decorated and my father was building an extension and we had a new modern kitchen which had under cabinet lighting which in 1974 I'd never seen before. But my parents being my parents there was always this undercurrent of tension and the positivity and happiness just didn't last. The responsibility of a new house and taking care of the family and everything that went with our new life was difficult for my father and this meant he would resort to violent behaviour towards my mother and myself. Any peace in the house would suddenly and without warning be shattered by screaming, swearing, shouting, things being thrown, fights and the net result would be my brother and I hiding in our bedrooms. Then out of the blue one day my mother called my brother and I in from the garden. My father was out and I believe this was a Saturday so he would have been playing rugby and we all knew that he wouldn't be back until very late Saturday night. My mother sat on the sofa looking at me stood in front of her and she had a suitcase by her side and told me that she was going shopping and was taking my younger brother with her. She explained that she'd be back later and asked me if I'd be okay waiting on my own. I assume I said yes, but what else would I have said? I knew that she wanted me to say yes, even though I knew something wasn't right. For a start, her tone of voice towards me raised an alarm. She never talked to me with any kind of warmth or care or concern about whether I'd be okay. So the fact that she was doing so now worried me somewhat. But I went with it. She stood up, kissed me on top of my head and walked out the door without looking back. Suitcase in one hand and my brother's hand in the other. And I stood in the middle of the lounge where I could see them walk away. And I was rooted to that spot as they walked up the hill and down the other side. And I didn't move until the top of my mother's head had disappeared from view. At which point I suddenly felt cold because my instinct was telling me she hadn't simply gone shopping. I don't know how long I was stood there, staring at that point that I'd last seen my mother and brother, but I had to shake myself out of the trance-like state I was in. Once I became present of the fact that I was alone in the house, and not knowing when anyone would return, I had to consider what to do next. Biscuits, I thought. So I went into the kitchen and I raided the biscuit barrel, Returning to the lounge so that I could see if my mother came back, I would have time to scoff the biscuits before she walked through the door and caught me. Over the next few hours, I just played in my bedroom, watched some TV, and eventually falling asleep on the sofa. When I woke up, it was dark, and there was my father and two of his friends stood over me. I asked where my mother and brother were, but nobody answered me. I remember next I was taken to one of the friend's houses and stayed there overnight before going to live with my paternal nanny for the next few months. 
Over the next year or so, I lived in rotation with my two paternal aunties and my nanny. And I have to say they looked after me very well. And I felt cared for and loved. And even though I would move around between them, I actually didn't mind. In all this time, I didn't see my mother and brother. But I didn't see my father as well because he had checked himself into what was then called a mental institution, having told his doctor he was going to kill himself, a story he's been telling anyone who would listen for over 50 years. The doctor wasn't convinced, so he checked himself in anyway. I would often think about my mother and miss my brother terribly, as we'd been close growing up, and I understood why my brother was with her and I wasn't. I knew he was her favourite, but... I never resented him for it, but it wasn't something he chose. But I was envious of him at times, for the love and attention he received from my mother. I knew by now that my mother had abandoned me, and I knew the reason too. She just didn't like me. And that made sense to me because, well, there were kids at school that didn't like me either. During my time living with my aunties and my nanny, I was aware that my father had abandoned me too, because he was never there. I didn't see him for well over a year until late one night when I was just about to go to bed and there was a knock at my nanny's door. I answered it and just stared at this man that I vaguely recognised wearing a sheepskin coat and offering me multiple bars of chocolate. But I just stared trying to place this face. He then told me he was my dad so I took the chocolate obviously and my nanny told him to come in while they sat talking. I tried to stuff as much of the chocolate in my mouth before my nanny realised what I was doing and stopped me, which she did and put the rest of the chocolate in the cupboard out of my reach. Apart from that night, I still didn't see my father again much, only occasionally. On an ad hoc basis, he would take me to random places, whether it was the car auctions, the gym, the rugby club or visiting a friend. I never got the feeling he wanted to spend time with me per se, just that he was ticking the dad box by having me tag along. Now life ticked along like this for probably 18 months or so, until my father showed up one day and took me back to our old house, the one we were living in when my mother had left, and I hadn't been back to this house since that day, and I was shocked by what I saw. The whole house had been smashed up. Kitchen cabinets had been ripped off the wall. The glass wall mirror in the bathroom was smashed into pieces in the bath. The chandelier in the lounge, yeah, it was the 70s, was in pieces on the floor and the cable hanging down. Wardrobes had had their doors ripped off. And as I stood looking at all this devastation, my father told me that my granddad had done all this. Although I'd never known my granddad to be violent, And my father couldn't tell me why he'd done something like this, so I drew my own conclusion. It was definitely my father. He sat me on his knee and he asked me a question that I absolutely wasn't expecting. He asked me if I would like to see my mother and brother again today. Well, of course I would, I said. And he told me they were living not far away and he was going to take me to see them. Now, this was one weekend during the summer of 1976 and feeling very nervous and excited, we set off. Eventually, my father parked up on a street corner and told me that the house I wanted was number 33, just a bit further down the road. I thought it strange that he didn't come to the door with me or at least park outside the house and watch until I went in. But this was a strange family of mine, so I didn't question it too much. 
He said he'd be back for me at 4.30. And off I went. I went up the drive and round the back of the house. And there was a boy sat on the back step putting on some trainers or football boots. And stood in the kitchen was my mother. She turned and saw me and I went in and she hugged me and began crying as did I. The boy came in and he kept asking my mother, who is it? Who is it? And she told him, it's your brother Philip. And Rob hugged me as well. And we all cried. I was told they were living with a man called Paul and his two children who were out at the time and this was their house and that I'd meet them later if they were back before my father came to pick me up. I spent a wonderful afternoon playing with my brother as he showed me all around this new build estate and the fields surrounding it. The weather was epic as anyone around in the 1976 summer will remember. It felt like This was all a bit surreal for me to be playing with my brother and everyone happy to see me. I met Paul and his children and I was struck by what a nice guy he was, not just to me but towards my mother, Rob and his own children. As the afternoon wore on, it got closer to the time my father was due to pick me up, but I didn't want the day to end. I was having the greatest time. Us kids all had tea together, sandwiches, juice and cake, and I waited for my father to pick me up. And I waited, and I waited. As afternoon turned into evening, and eventually night time, it became clear. He wasn't coming back for me. My immediate thought was that something must have happened to him, and that's why he couldn't come and pick me up. And I just assumed he'd be back the next day, or someone would come and get me. But that didn't happen. And I had to admit that he had abandoned me to my mother, brother, and a family who I didn't know. I was a bit conflicted because I had had the best day and wanted it to be repeated day after day. But I also wanted to return to my normal life with my nanny and my aunties. I now had to try and make sense of where exactly my life was and think through just what had happened to me over the last two years or so. I've always been a deep thinker, perhaps a bit too much so, but So much had changed in my life in the previous two years that I felt completely disorientated. And it was quite unnerving because I didn't at that time know where it would stop. Was I about to be uprooted again? The journey to this point had begun with my mother walking out and taking my brother, but leaving me behind with no explanation, and ended at this point with my father doing pretty much the same thing. Neither of my parents want me, so... They keep passing me around. Am I ever going to feel settled again? I had a lot of unanswered questions swirling around my head. And I wanted to ask my father why he'd not come back for me. Many years later, I learned about that day that my mother had no idea I was coming. And my father had no intention of returning for me. Which all helped cement the feelings of abandonment and rejection. And I had nobody to talk to about it. My mother would frequently lash out at me when the mood caught her and she'd remind me that I was only living with her because nobody else wanted me. The reality of my situation was that I was now living in a house that belonged to a stranger, albeit a nice stranger, with a mother I knew didn't want me and there were six of us in this small three-bedroomed house. Clearly this wasn't sustainable for long and inevitably, after a few months, my mother left the house, this time taking me and my brother Rob. 
But with nowhere to go, we were homeless. I remember this day being particularly miserable, not just because I was aware that we were homeless, but it was also rainy and we were wandering aimlessly around Nottingham City Centre as my mother went from phone box to phone box trying to get the social services to find us somewhere temporary to live. At one point we went into a local cinema just to kill time because it was somewhere warm and dry. The Disney film The Rescuers was showing. Rob was too young to appreciate the fact that we were homeless but I did and I sat there all the time worrying about what was going to happen to us. And to this day, I still can't watch that film because it invokes those same feelings of fear. Eventually, we were accommodated temporarily in a B&B, in an attic room at the top of this gothic-looking house where all three of us shared one room. And because it was a B&B and not a hotel, we had to vacate the room after breakfast and we couldn't return until the evening. So regardless of the weather, we would spend our days hanging around cafes and the streets of Nottingham, and this continued for some weeks, in and out of various B&Bs, until we were given a house by the council, in a less than salubrious area of Nottingham, which I hated. And I wasn't the only one. My mother would often tell me that if it had just been her and Rob, she would have had a better choice of where to live. My parents were finally divorced a year later, and it took the intervention of the courts to prevent me being dragged into a bitter, acrimonious fight between them, as they both wanted me as a witness for each of them. And I remember being relieved at not having to take a side in the battle. I used to think about that football match during World War I between the British and the Germans, and how I would sooner have refereed that game than been drawn into a battle between my warring parents. However, despite the hostile divorce... They hadn't done living together and splitting up. And over the next three years, we would end up living in another seven more houses, twice more being homeless, until the council housed us in Buxton, Derbyshire. I've spent pretty much all my adult life being estranged from my parents, with only brief periods of contact. But even then, I knew it was only a matter of time before there'd be a row, or their interests would just fade. There was, as you can imagine, very little real connection between us. Did I ever get an explanation from either of them about why they'd abandoned me? My mother told me she'd inform my father she was leaving him and he'd said to her that he would kill her if she took me. Now, I didn't believe that for a minute and being a parent myself, I can't imagine ever leaving behind one of my children, especially with someone who makes threats to life. And my father, he said that he left me because he felt better knowing me and my brother were together. Well, that's bullshit. I never believed that then, and I don't now. At the beginning of this episode, I said I'd break down how I felt about all of this now, and the lessons I learned from it, so that they may help you handle any abandoned issues you may be harbouring. To begin with, I look at what being abandoned by my parents actually taught me about myself and how it might be affecting my behaviours. So lesson one was not to apportion blame, and not use what had happened to me as an excuse for bad behaviour. Now that might sound simplistic, but I was now a teenager and beginning to find my own voice and opinions about the world. This meant I knew right from wrong, and so I would always aim to take the right action, even if it was the more challenging, rather than taking the easier option, knowing it was the wrong move. I didn't always get it right, like I got caught shoplifting in Woolworths, but what I did do was recognise that being cautioned by the police 
was a warning and to not do it again. And yes, that takes discipline when your friends are egging you on. But like I said, you do the right thing because it's right, not because it's easy. Similarly, when I saw my friends smoking or taking drugs, I refused to join in because it was the right thing. I had a friend who used to sniff glue in his bedroom while I watched on until one day I had to grab hold of him to stop him from jumping out of his bedroom window because he was hallucinating. That was enough to put me off drugs and I've never met someone yet that started smoking because their friends did it and didn't regret it. So my choices have been vindicated. And the more that happens, the more I'm inclined to make the difficult decisions and take the difficult actions. Most of the time throughout our lives, when we have to make decisions about the actions we take, How many times have we decided to take the easy route or the more preferable route over what we know to be the right route? And how many times have we regretted that decision and wished we hadn't? It takes discipline to do what you know to be the right thing when what you want to do is complete opposite. But I found that the rewards for doing the right thing far outweigh the short-term gains associated with immediate gratification of the preferable choice. And you do this consistently, it becomes a habit. And as such, you'll get more things right than you get wrong. Which leads me to lesson two, about not allowing abandonment to be the root cause of these bad behaviours. So lesson two is forgiveness. When you get things wrong, forgive yourself and learn from the experience so that you don't repeat that particular mistake again. Everybody deserves a second chance in my book, including me, but not a third. So learn from the first mistake. And that's why I've forgiven myself for not forgiving my parents. They had a chance, chance after chance to do the right thing or to put their mistakes right. And they never chose to. So therefore, I don't have to forgive. And I'm at peace with that. And if you've experienced the same thing, you can get peace by doing the same thing. I know of someone in a very similar position to me that chooses to rise above her toxic parent with kindness and finds it works well for her. I admire that approach immensely, but I know I don't have the ability in me to do the same. So what are some of the bad behaviours with abandonment issues that we can expect to show? Often it's within relationships that they manifest themselves most toxically such as anxiety about a partner, for example, leading to strong fears of losing loved ones, clinginess or manipulative behaviour. This for me is where the habit of doing the right thing over doing the easy thing or the reactive thing is a real benefit. So lesson three is taking emotional responsibility for your actions. Within a relationship, this is imperative if that relationship is going to stand any chance of thriving. Recognising that you can't change other people's behaviours, but you can change yours, will enable you to focus on your own actions, which is your responsibility, and minimise you zooming in on the behaviour of your partner or the other person within that relationship. One action you need to take, absolutely, is to build up your self-worth so that you aren't constantly seeking reassurance from other people. You will find, if you take the time, perhaps meditate, you will find ways 
to like yourself. Very few people have no redeeming qualities. So search for the things that give you worth and focus on them consistently. And you will be more relaxed about who you are and your value. And that will boost your self-worth. The next valuable lesson in regulating your potential bad behaviours is lesson number four. Holding yourself accountable for the mistakes you make. Be prepared to ask yourself difficult searching questions and be open about what's going on within yourself, why you think it's happening, how you're going to avoid repeating that behavior and guaranteeing that to yourself. Not being afraid to say sorry as well and meaning it and vowing to do better in the future and that you will learn. Remember, everyone deserves a second chance, but not a third. So make sure you learn the lesson and don't repeat those mistakes. Perhaps the most significant lesson that I've learned over these years is lesson number five, taking ownership of the story, recognizing what happened, what my role in it was, and most importantly, that I was not the problem. I can't go back and relive all those years when I might have thought I was, and it would be easy to feel bitterness and anger towards the people that had the problem. But as we've established, we're focused on what is right, not what is necessarily easy. So the right approach is to be present with the fact that I was not the problem and park it there. Lastly, I would say that if you really are struggling with abandonment issues, then you have to talk to someone because to not reach out when you need help will only compound the internal struggle more. I'm involved with a terrific charity called Andy's Man Club which is a self-help group for men who get together and share whatever struggles they're facing. There are groups all over the UK and I would definitely recommend going along to one of those meetings every Monday night between 7 and 9pm. And you can find your nearest group online at andysmanclub.co.uk. There are, I believe, similar groups for women all over the UK and like I say, get involved if you need to. After I had my accident, and I had been through the initial grieving stage of mourning my old able-bodied life, I decided I wanted to do something with my life. And it was around this time I thought about getting revenge on my parents for abandoning me. After all, the years of turmoil, anxiety and fear I had suffered deserved to be repaid to them, didn't it? Who, listening to this podcast, can say that they would not feel the desire to get their revenge on the people that should have loved and cared for them? Well, I resolved to do just that. And over the subsequent years, I did get my revenge by living the best life. The life I had designed for myself. One where I was happy in a fulfilling relationship with two children that grew up in a consistent environment, knowing they were loved and had parents that would make sacrifices for them. Parents who provided all of what they needed and much of what they wanted. The ultimate revenge I got over my parents was to live a consistent, fulfilling life that they would not even recognise because of its normality and leave them wondering how the hell you did that. And I did that in spite of them not because of them. Thanks for listening to my podcast, guys. It's been a blast, and I've been lucky to have you guys with me for the last 12 weeks. I'm going to take a break for a few weeks now to consolidate and catch up, but I will be back. But if you want to get in touch in the meantime, you can get hold of me at phil at designforlifecoaching.com. Otherwise, I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to my podcast, guys. I really appreciate your company. 
and I hope you got something from this episode that can help you with your life. If you did, then click subscribe because I've got so much more to share with you and I don't want you to miss a thing. Also, why not bring your friends on the journey and share this podcast with them? You can post feedback in the comments section. I'd love to hear what you've got to say. Or you can get in touch with me direct by visiting my website at designforlifecoaching.com, especially if you're struggling at the moment and you need a lift. In the meantime, stay safe, guys, and I look forward to catching up with you soon.